0: All right, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and um, I was reading this week about a semi-famous Briton by the name of Lord Robert Winston, of famous in terms of he, he made a, a go of it in technology and has a lot of Twitter followers, and, and this guy was riding on the train from London to Manchester, and as he sat in for his two-hour train ride, as the train began to go, he noticed that the lady across the aisle and just a little bit ahead of him began a phone call. And for the entirety of the two hours on the train, she talked on the phone. Now, If you've ever ridden on a train, you know that this is a breach of social etiquette, right? Because everybody can hear you talk on the phone, but they only hear one half of the conversation and it drives everyone else crazy. If they want to sleep, their minds just automatically try to fill in what's on the other side of the conversation. It was driving him so crazy that the way he retaliated was he grabbed his phone, took a picture of her and posted it on his Twitter account. Of course, because he's semi-famous, the, uh, the local news media picked it up. They met this lady at the train station, and they started quizzing her, and her response was, when she saw the Twitter post, how rude, you know? <laughs> and the media grabbed that and started branding Lord the, this guy a bully for taking her picture and publishing that, and Lord Robert Winston became a bully. Now, all that's to say, I was thinking about the experience of listening to half of a phone conversation. And if you've ever done that, it's, it drives you a little bit crazy because our minds just naturally try to piece together what's on the other side of that conversation. That is the case, what's happening with the passage before us today in 1 Corinthians 11. We are re- reading a letter in a chain of letters, and the problem is that we don't necessarily know what the correspondence written to Paul before this was, and we're left to piece it together. The other problem is we don't understand the culture of Corinth to which Paul is writing. I mean, it was 2,000 years ago. It's hard for us to identify with that. And because of that, we fill in the blanks with our own assumptions. To properly understand the passage before us today and to apply it to our eyes, we, to our own lives, we need to first wipe away as best we can our preconceptions and look at it with fresh eyes. And this is important because we're about to walk into probably one of the trickier passages in the New Testament. This addresses the idea of headship. And because of assumptions made of this passage, about this passage, people walk away with all kinds of pain and difficulty. Some walk away and get offended and and call Paul a male chauvinist. Some feel that somehow, because of this passage, they can treat women as inferior to men. Some read this passage and because of their own preconceptions, define vocabulary and redefine it to fit their own thinking. Some read this passage and reject the gospel altogether. They say, if the Bible is filled with passages like this, we reject this. Some people say, you know, I read this and I don't really know what it means, uh, so I'm just going to ignore it, practically speaking. And that's probably most of us, to be honest. To be really truthful and honest to you today, transparent, I have been dreading this passage. I have been dreading preaching this passage. One of the uh, advantages of working through a book of the Bible like we do at Waukee Community Church is that I don't have to invent the topics we talk about. The topics are brought up by the text. One of the disadvantages of preaching through a text like this is we've got to address everything that's put in front of us in Scripture. And so here we are working through this. And because of the pain and misunderstanding of this passage, I've just been dreading it. In fact, I've been dreading it so much that last week I came down with influenza just to avoid talking about this passage. (laughs) Okay, that's not so, but it did put it off for a week. Um, By the way, I'm doing much better. By Wednesday, I was back up in the office and running again. Man, last Sunday, I was so grateful that... uh, Jordan Carell pinch hit for me on less than 24 hours notice, because I was in a bad place on Saturday, as my family can attest. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I listened to what Jordan had to say, and uh, he did such a great job, and I just really appreciate that. So one of the reasons that I have been dreading this passage is because of all the misunderstanding and preconceptions, and this passage has been used, unfortunately, to hurt. And so I want to approach this passage today carefully and like a surgeon using a scalpel dissecting this. You know, a scalpel in the hands of someone who's not trained can be a weapon, but a scalpel in the hands of a trained surgeon can bring healing. I hope today as we dive into this thing that, uh, that you will find healing from this passage of Scripture, not hurt. There's, uh, we've been in 1 Corinthians and the basic idea I've been telling you over and over is that as children of God, as those who believe in Jesus, we've been brought from the kingdom of death into the kingdom of life, from darkness to light, from the old reality to the new reality. And how do we live in the midst of the new reality when we see the old reality all around us? We've been, Paul's been answering questions that the Corinthians have written down in a letter and sent to him. And the section we're just starting now is all about their Sunday worship gatherings. They have questions, practical questions about how they're supposed to do this Sunday gathering thing. And so Paul is addressing this now in this section, and he's going to talk about a lot of things, one today is headship. Next week, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And he just practically speaking, how do we do this Sunday gathering thing? So with that in mind, I want to read the first verse in our section, verse 2 of chapter 11. That's where our text starts today. Paul says to the Corinthians, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I passed them on to you. okay. Um, That verse seems nice and innocuous enough, but why is Paul praising the Corinthians? What are these teachings? Like, it's like we're listening to one side of a conversation. They know what he's talking about. What are these teachings that they're holding to? Well, we have to reassemble the conversation. And I think through careful study of this passage in the book in in Corinth, uh, this book of Corinthians to to the church at Corinth, and understanding all of Paul's letters, I think I've come down to understanding what I believe is the specific teaching that Paul is referring to here. And that is this verse in Galatians. Ben, put this verse up there. In Galatians 3.28, Paul tells the Christians, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, that racial divide was significant. There is neither slave nor free, There there was a cultural divide, a class hierarchy there. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Friends, you have to understand that the early church was revolutionary in its understanding of this. The early church had people from all different social classes, all different economic strata, all different races, and of course, Both genders, male and female, were in the church. And the church was revolutionary for saying, guess what? No matter where you are on this strata or level in the church, you're one in Christ. You're all valued with kingdom values. And when Paul affirms this, affirms the Corinthians now for listening to this. Now, you have to understand, given this teaching... What were the women, in particular, the wives in Corinth saying? Well, let me put in some background for you before we read this text in its entirety, okay? First of all, you need to understand that wives were asking the question, okay, if we're all one in Christ, why am I bound by the social construct of our day? Why, when I'm gathered with other believers, do I have to embrace the social construct of the day? you have to understand in the, in the uh, ancient culture there in Corinth and in other parts of the Roman world, uh, how a woman wore her hair signified her beauty. Now we look at physical beauty in women and men in very different ways today, but in this culture, a woman's beauty was held in her head. And so what was the social expectation of a woman who was in public was that her long hair would be wrapped up as a covering on top of her head. A married woman kept her hair braided in public and wrapped close to their heads. And a woman in first century culture honored her husband in this way by not revealing their beauty in public. The only place you didn't see a woman in public with her beauty on her head, with her hair up and covered, was at the temple of Aphrodite. At the temple of Aphrodite, there were thousands of prostitutes. And those prostitutes cut their hair short, revealing their beauty for any man who would have them. Now, so we come back to this question as we get ready to read this passage. The wives, Christian women, asked this question, why should I be bound by the social constraints of the old reality? When the church is together, it represents a new reality. So these women said, I'm literally letting my hair down because I have freedom in Christ. Now, that's great. I mean, I can just sort of imagine, you know, from the movie, them pulling their hair out and, and, you know, and their hair falling down on their shoulders and doing this in their Sunday worship gathering. But you need to understand culturally, if any non-believer from Corinth would have walked in to their gathering, it would have been an equivalent if they walked into our gathering today and we were all worshiping in our underwear, okay? Now, don't think about that too long, all right? But the idea, if they, I mean, people will go, these people are crazy. What is wrong with them? And of course, that would have been the same thing that happened in Corinth. And so to address this situation, because in a way that you and I can really never understand, somehow a woman taking her hair out and letting it down in a public gathering was dishonoring to their husbands. And we'll never understand that, okay? We're just not in Corinth. We're just not ingrained in that. But What I need to say is that Paul, to address this situation, is going to tap into some theological truths about the God-ordained nature of men and women and specifically apply these theological truths to husbands and wives in the first century. And these theological truths that Paul is going to tap here are this. Namely, one, God created men and women equal in value, different in roles, and mutually dependent upon each other, complementary to one another. So if I were to reduce this to one idea that I would like you to remember today from this passage, your gender has been given to you as a joy and honor from God. Therefore, you should view your gender as a means to bring joy and honor to God. You should also respond to the opposite gender in a way that brings joy and honor to God. So if I can just encourage you in any way you possibly can, allow yourself to let go of your preconceptions as we're going to read this passage. Just let go of them. Keep in mind some of the things I have told you about the context. Some of you might get angry as I read this. Some of you might feel offended. Some of you might go, oh yeah, I understand that. I got it. Let go of all those preconceptions, and let's just read the passage together. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 3 now. Paul has just praised them. Now he says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her hair were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason and because of the angels the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. For everything comes from God. Judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, just let that settle in for a second, okay? First off, we need to talk a little bit about biblical interpretation, one of the things that I implore you as Christians is to think, use your brain that God gave you in the interpretation of Bible passages. So every Bible passage we have teaches a theological truth about God and about people. Every Bible passage we have usually applies that into a first century or whatever context that passage is written to setting our job as Christians who handle the word is to think carefully. We must identify the theological truths, not applying them to first century culture, but 21st century culture. This is what we do as we carefully handle the word. So the simplest interpretation, if we just want to not think carefully about this, The simplest way to handle this passage is for us on the, on your way in next week, we're going to hand out hats to all the ladies. Okay. And they're not going to be just any hat. They're going to be giant Southern bell hats. Okay. That's what we're going to have here. And then of course, at the same time, we're going to provide a barber to give military haircuts to every man that comes in our place. Right? So it'll be right out in the setting and that's the right? Like (laughs) if you don't have a short enough haircut, it's going to get zipped off. So that is not thinking carefully right? But we want to think carefully about this text. And we want to get to the theological truth and then apply that to the 21st century culture. So the first thing we need to look at is we need to identify that primarily this text is addressed to husbands and wives. Primarily. There are implications for all men and women, but to apply this generically to everyone, to say, That every man is the head of every woman is a violation of the text. That's not what Paul's saying here. Those are not the words he picks out. The the ESV does a great job in highlighting this in its translation and highlighting this is primarily given the context about husbands and wives. So let's not be thoughtless about this, okay? Second thing that we need to understand deeply is in this verse, uh, chapter 3. The head of every man is Christ, the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What does this word head mean? This is the Greek word for kephale. That's the Greek word for head, kephale. What does this mean? Well, um, first of all, we need to acknowledge that Paul is giving a play on words here. He's using a literary device. He's saying, hey, listen, we got issues with uncovered or covered heads, I'm going to take this issue, this physical issue, and do a play on words to talk about a spiritual issue of heads, headship. Now, Paul in verse three is talking and setting up a hierarchy, which is somewhat troubling to us in our 21st century understanding of this text. And because of all the baggage we carry about what this means, some have looked at this and said, "This I don't like this I, maybe there's a way we can redefine terms here. Um, over the last 20 years, there's been a large discussion amongst theologians about what kephale means. Does it mean source or does it mean authority? Which one does it mean? Well, source is very appealing because that's what that's what we would think right away, right? Source uh, that that the head, the source of every man is Christ. The source of every woman is man, okay, that this gets more appealing. The problem is the last part, the source of Christ is God. So there's two problems. One, that there's really no textual historical evidence for translating this word as source. And second problem is Christ does not have an origin. Scripture teaches that Jesus as the second person of the Godhead existed from eternity past, there was no moment when Jesus didn't exist. So to say that he's, his source or origin is from the Father is a clear violation of the rest of Scripture. All right, so well, let's go back. If that doesn't work, let's go back to the word authority. What do we mean by authority? Well, one who gives direction to. That's the simplest meaning of authority. Now, before you throw uh, rotten fruit at the Apostle Paul here, right? Because these are his words, not mine. So before you get mad at the Apostle Paul, what we need to do is shed our preconceptions of the word authority. All right? Because if you throw, if you get angry about this and don't shed your preconceptions, you're not going to understand what Paul means here. Authority in the kingdom of God is always, 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 always Completely upside down to what authority in this world means. Jesus said, here's the authority you want to have as followers of Christ. If anyone wants to be great among you, he must be servant of all. If anyone wants to be first, she should be last. These are Jesus' words, right? Jesus is the head of the church. How does he lead with the authority of the church? By sacrifice, Jesus is the head who sacrificed everything for the church. And here in the Trinity, we have this beautiful example of this mutual submission. In the Trinity, we have three persons in one being, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Spirit joyfully and willingly submits to the Son. The Son joyfully and willingly submits to the Father. And yet, these are all three persons coexisting as God. Our problem is that we have the wrong view of authority. We view it as dictatorship. Authority in the new reality serves and builds up. Authority in the new reality sacrifices. Authority in the old reality wields power. Authority in the old reality focuses on the gain of the person who has the authority. In the new reality, gives it up. And friends, frankly, the old reality all around us, we have horrible examples. We have men who think they can force their will on women. We have men in our culture who think that they can force their way and have their way. And we've got this entire movement of women who are standing up and saying, No more, no more to this horrible example of authority. And they're right. The gospel message stands opposed to authority that is forced upon another. If anyone wants to be great, he should be a servant. So when we take this now understanding of headship, this beautiful, life-giving, sacrificial view of headship, now we take this and let's see how Paul applied this to the Corinthians. He said, first of all, to the wives cover your head or to the husbands uncover your head because of all the cultural baggage that went along with this. And there's this theological truth of headship that's applied to them in ways that were well known to them. And you and I have a hard time understanding somehow husbands, if they had long hair that dishonored Christ who gave his life for them. Well, We can look at our culture right now and despise what your great uncle says about long-haired hippies. Generally speaking, long hair of a guy does not dishonor him. In the same way, short hair for a woman is not dishonoring. Letting letting the hair down, though, in the first century for a woman to take her covering off was a clear dishonor of her husband. Look at verse 5 this is really interesting here. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's as though her head were shaved. So in the first century in Corinth, if a woman uncovered her head, she might as well shave it and take it off. And that would make her like who? The prostitutes in the temple. I mean, it's a slap in the face for Paul to say this. Saying, this is what you're doing. Now, this isn't what we're doing with short hair or long hair or covering or not. But this is what uh, the application of Paul's theological values. Paul deeply appreciates the giftedness of the women in Corinth. He's not sidelining them or devaluing them. In fact, just the opposite. What did we read in verse 5 just then? And every woman who prays or prophesies, this is about the Sunday gathering of Corinth. What does Paul assume? Paul makes the assumption that women and men are praying in public and prophesying. By prophecy, we don't mean foretelling the future, but speaking truth. We have this understanding that Paul has that women are actively engaged in their corporate worship together. So he's not devaluing them. He deeply values the giftedness of women in the church at Corinth because he knows they love Christ and he wants them to honor their husbands, and he wants husbands to honor their wives. Well, how do we apply this then to us? Because it's not as simple as head coverings and no head coverings, right? Well, first of all, we got to find this theological truth. And for this, Paul digs into Genesis chapter 2. He's going to find biblical support for the theological truth. And this is what he does. A man, verse seven, ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. The woman is the glory of man. Okay. What is he talking about here? Paul goes back to Genesis chapter two, before the fall, when um, when Adam and Eve are existing in the garden, but before Eve was created, Adam was there alone. And what did God say? It's not good that he's alone. It's not good so God put Adam in a deep sleep, and then in Genesis 2 says he took a rib out of Adam, and from that rib crafted Eve. And then, so Adam is the image bearer of God, but so is Eve, she's also the image bearer of God, because in Genesis we read this, God created them male and female, both in the image of God. But the glory of the woman, the image of God, comes through Adam because she was created through him. So Paul digs into this and there's this beautiful structure. Now, all of this was marred in the fall. When Adam and Eve, created both in the glory of God, willingly partook of the fruit, the whole world changed. Everything was marred and changed, and part of the consequence of this is, God said, part of the consequence of your willful rebellion to me is that men will treat women poorly. Uh, that 's the part of the curse there's this this, and we see it borne out all around us all the time, and the gospel stands in stark contrast to that now. Before the fall, Paul said, I mean, excuse me, God said in Genesis 2 that he would create Eve as a helpmate for Adam. A lot of people have problems with this because it sounds demeaning. Except the word helpmate is really a a picture of completion. So when God created Eve, he created her as a helpmate for Adam. Guess where else this word helpmate is used of? Who else? It's used of God himself. God is called a helpmate to people sometimes. So all of a sudden, this word is not derogatory or demeaning. Paul is valuing women. Adam is supposed to lovingly lead through sacrifice. And because of this sacrificial love, Paul says women should honor their husband. And in Corinth, just put your hair up. It honors your husband. Your gender has been given to you as a joy and honor from God. You should view your gender as a means to bring joy and honor to God. Now we come to verse 10, and and I, I got to be honest, to some degree, I just threw up my hands and I go, I don't know what to do with this. Verse 10, for this reason and because of the angels. <laughs> what, the, what is going on? Well, I think that as I've really dug into this text and I could think what is generally understood is that when we're gathered as a body of Christ, there are angels present. Right now, there are angels present. Now, what angels know is what the New Testament teaches in other places, that human beings will one day stand in authority over angels. The redeemed in Christ one day will stand in authority, both men and women, And I think what Paul is saying is, by the way here, everyone, when we're gathered and the angels are present, they want to know that someday you're going to get this right. Like They want to know you're going to get it right. One might read this and think that Paul views women as inferior. And now, now Paul, he's aware of that as he's writing. And now he wants to say, but don't think that. Look back at verse 11. He's going to tell of him a better way now. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman, For as the woman came from a man, the rib Eve, right? For the woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. There's not a man that exists that wasn't born of a woman. So there's this beautiful interdependency that Paul is now highlighting. The original structure, God says. Paul says that headship is devoid of domineering chauvinism. There is a better way that honors our differences in men and women and acknowledges that we deeply need each other in mutual submission. So, honor each other, even if it means, ladies in Corinth, putting up your hair as a way to honor your husband. Now, did these ladies have the right in Christ to put their hair down? Did a man have the right to wear a hat if he wanted? Yes. But just as we have been saying through the entire book of 1 Corinthians, the gospel declares that in Christ, those of us who know what Jesus did for us should willingly give up our rights for others. Just like just like we talked about with meat sacrifice to idols just like that this is what we christians do we sacrifice we choose submission and if you want to see an example of that we just simply turn to jesus in the garden hours before he was crucified he sat in the garden praying weeping sweating blood he was so stressed And he said, Heavenly Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. But not my will, but your will. The son willingly gave up his rights and submitted to the father. Authority in the kingdom of God is not forced upon others. We all willingly choose submission. And the biggest problem in our Christian culture is that we've totally understood the biblical headship. Christian headship is sacrifice first. So how should this headship issue transcend into our lives? If as Christians, we're saying, okay, Paul taps into this theological truth about headship and ordering, what does this look like? Because it doesn't mean lesser value. What does headship mean? What does this look like? How do we avoid applying this by giving haircuts or not giving haircuts or providing hats or wigs for everyone, right? How do we avoid that application but apply the spiritual truths to our lives? Well, this is one reason as a church that we are unashamedly complementarian in our view of this. A complementarian position simply acknowledges that there are differences but equal value equal value, different roles, mutually dependent upon each other. And men and women are created to complement each other. We also recognize that because spiritual structure given to men and women at creation, there are different roles based on spiritual authority in our church. We affirm that all the spiritual gifts, all of them, have been equally made available to both men and women. And we want men and women to use their spiritual gift in a mutually sacrificial way that build up the body of Christ. But let's get a little bit more specific. Paul applies this to women, but I think we can turn this and flip it and also apply this to men. Guys, husbands, you have a responsibility to treat your wives as sisters in Christ and as daughters of the king. There is no room, there's no room in our church for a man to treat his wife poorly. We honor Christ when we remember that our wives are daughters of the king. There is no room for a man to treat any woman poorly. Just the opposite. Men should lead through sacrifice. Women, today, I want you to know that you're valuable and you are children of the king of the universe. And you can expect and should expect to be absolutely honored by your husbands and by the men in this church. We should treat you, guys should treat you with such joy and honor that we look like tame little lambs compared to the power hungry men of this world. Plenty of men in your lives have sent you a message that you're not valuable. And according to scripture, that is a lie. It is a lie from the pit of hell. You're valuable. You should be honored and cherished. Well, how does this issue of headship then transcend into our marriages? Because if headship doesn't mean domineering authority, domineering oppressive, forcing one's will on the other, how does this work? How do husbands function as heads when they're not taking their example from the world. The best example that I can come up with, the best metaphor for this, is simply a dance. When, traditionally, when a man and a woman dance formally, traditionally, the man leads. But this dance does not work if a man tries to force his dance routine upon his partner right? A a, a true dance team, one cannot force the other to do something. There's this beautiful, gentle leading. In fact, as I understand it, I'm no ballroom dancer, but when he puts his hand on the small of her back, the way he says, we're going to go this way is by gently pulling back or pulling forward. She then gets to choose. (laughs) Is it, we going to make this work or not? right? He can't force her to get on the dance floor. He can't force her to do anything. It's this beautiful partnership. Someone just has to lead. I think that's a beautiful picture for the way marriage works. God created husbands and wives, men and women, to be equal in value, different in roles, and mutually dependent because your gender has been given you as a joy and honor from God. Therefore, you should view your gender as a means to bring joy and honor to God. How you respond to your spouse reflects how you view Christ. Now, I was trying to figure out how do we apply this to our lives. And I just kind of felt like my own marriage is uh, is kind of an example that I want you to see. In fact, I want to ask Clarissa if she would come up right now um, because I, I, I want to quiz her and just let our marriage just be out there for you, right? Like all of its flaws and all of its problems. And you can grab that mic right there, hon. And, uh, and <laughs> by the way, I didn't force her to do this. I <laughs> am just saying, you know, like we had this discussion about this, but yeah, here, here, hun, sit right there. So um, one of the things about Clarissa and really why I wanted to bring her up here is, if you know my wife, uh, Clarissa has, a, one of her spiritual gifts is the spiritual gift of leadership. Uh, she gives me a run for my money, okay? And, and so if there's ever a situation where, like, how do this headship thing work? Like, we have struggled and worked, and I uh, am so impressed with my wife in how she has handled this issue. And so we talk about the value of husbands and wise men and women equal in value, different in roles mutually submitting to each other. And I just kind of wanted to pick that apart a little bit, Clarissa, and, uh, and throw some questions at you and just kind of, you all get to see the good, the bad, and the ugly of this. But uh, how does this equal thing work in our marriage? All right. As you know, we go about the daily task of raising our, our kids and, and doing life together. Uh, how does this equal and value thing do you think work in our marriage?
1: This is awesome. (laughs) Wow. Okay, so equal, I would say um, there's been many times I've talked to women who will be really discouraged because their husbands aren't um, maybe doing some of the things around the house or helping care for kids or um, it's this mindset of the husband goes to work and comes home and watches TV and the wife serves dinner and takes care of the chores in the house and the kids. And, And I would say in our marriage... Um, it is not that way. Dave is very much a man who, he'll do the dishes, he'll do the laundry. Our kids are our kids, not just mine to care for. And so I think, but we have a a lot of communication that happens in that and, and respecting each other and, in the times that sometimes we just need to step away for a minute and, and really communicating that together is important.
0: Yeah, I think oftentimes our, our children in particular, you know, they know how to pit us against one another. Not, you know, they just know, right? They know which questions to ask dad and which questions to ask mom, right? And one of the things that we learned long ago was, let me talk to your mother. Let me talk to your father. Like just saying, like, we're going to make these decisions together because we, we value each other as parents and husband and wife. So now flip it. How do, okay, so equal in value, different in roles. How does that work? Because as a woman, do you view this concept of spiritual headship as demeaning? Uh, and, and why or why not?
1: Okay. Um, well, so I'm going to try to make this short. <clears throat> I grew up in a home that the spiritual headship, I would say, was not my father, um, it was my mother. And she led in about every aspect of life in general, not just spiritually, but in every aspect of our home. And so it did not come naturally to me, um, this concept of, of having a head of the home be the man in the home, because it's not what I learned. But I will tell you that as I've dug into scripture and as God has transformed my heart, There is an amazing peace and and a security in knowing that God created my husband. Um, He is is responsible to God himself for how he leads his home and how he leads me. And I value that. I find great joy in that. And I don't think that's in a way that um, is—he's never, ever led in a way that is domineering or— you know, there are times where we'll have a situation going on and a decision has to be made, right? And we can disagree, which we never disagree, right? <laughs> never. <laughs> um, we can even get into an argument about something. At the end of the day, a decision has to be made. And it has to be my choice. Am I going to fight tooth and nail because I'm going to disagree and I think my way is better? Or am I going to submit to... Maybe what he thinks is better, trusting his judgment and trusting God's lead in his life, and and that's not so much about him as I think it's about me and my willingness to submit—not to just my husband, but to my Savior—and knowing, um, knowing that he is. And this is probably the most powerful thing for me is knowing that he is regularly in God's Word, knowing that he's praying on a daily basis, knowing that he is choosing to seek after God's wisdom and God's will for our family makes all the difference in the world for me.
0: Yeah. If you know, Clarissa, there's no forcing Clarissa to do anything. Like I just, it just doesn't work and it's miserable if I try. Uh, it's very much a dance for us. Okay. So we do have conflict, um, probably a lot. And so, um, how does that work? You were talking about the, the, um, example for you when we were prepping for this of, of just, um, my need to have time to process and h- how that works for you. T- talk about that a little
1: bit. So I grew up in a home that there was a lot of yelling. Um, you got heard. Actually, I didn't do a lot of yelling. I had a mom who yelled a lot. And so my response was to go hide in my room, right? And, but I didn't get hurt unless I argued my point. Um, And sometimes I was really adamant, like, you are wrong. I'm going to argue, and it didn't ever end well. Um, And so I learned that in order to process something, I need to talk about it. I need to be... I need to work through the details. I need to know that you understand. Um, And I don't deal well with unresolved conflict. For those of you who know me, um, I would much rather just have tell me everything you don't think I want to know, and and let me apologize, or let's work it out, and let's go on about our business, right? Um, I don't like lingering conflict, but I've learned that there's value sometimes in the waiting, and there's value sometimes in that processing. Um, Dave would be the opposite. Dave would not be one who enjoys sitting down and having a long conversation. <laughs> or sometimes he'll be like, land the plane, let's talk. Um,
0: I may have said that before. A few Please times. Please land the plane. That's not a yeah. good idea, by the
1: way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what I've learned is that I will, if I'm really struggling with something and I have a lot of emotion about it, I will send him an email. And I'll type it all out. It allows me to use my words carefully, but also explain what I'm thinking and feeling. And then he gets the chance to process it. But then we set a time where we sit down and we sit to talk through it, right? It gives me a chance to kind of work through the emotions of it so I can sit down and not be crying the whole time if I'm upset about something. Um, and it gives him time to really process what I'm saying. And when, I think there's value yeah. in, in when respecting she does
0: that, that. When she does that for me, I feel so honored that she gives me the time to process it as a sacrifice for her, I got to make sure that I don't let this thing linger long. Like that I, that I love her and honor her enough to know that for every minute that I'm contemplating, like her heart's about to go crazy and she's got, she needs resolution to that. And so I sacrifice for her sometimes when going, hey, thank you for honoring me and let me think about this, but I'm going to get back to it as fast as I possibly can for her sake. Okay, so um, one example you're talking about in this is uh, we we had four kids in five years, and as you know, there's a long gap, and then we had two more kids after about an eight-year gap. And uh, talk through a little bit about the story of how we arrived at this decision to have two more children.
1: God thinks he's got a really great sense of humor, Um, and he does, but... Um so I after we had four kids obviously it was crazy we had a lot of stuff going on um but I never really felt a peace about being done and building our family and I didn't know what that meant as far as whether we were supposed to have our own or adopt or or what that looked like but I knew it wasn't a settled thing in my heart and so when we talked about it he was pretty adamant that it was a settled thing in his heart and it should be settled thing in my heart as well um and he pretty much said, unless God tells me and hits me over the head with a two-by-four, it's not going to happen. And so, um, and okay, so I need to respect that, right? It was really hard. So at some point, I tried having the conversation enough where he's like, we're not having this conversation anymore. We're done. And I said, okay, well, then I'm going to pray that God will either change my heart or he'll change your heart. And so, but... That's a really scary <laughs> prayer, by the way. Like... <laughs> So, but here's the thing. I didn't go into that prayer expecting him to change Dave's heart. I went into that prayer daily expecting and waiting for him to change my heart. Um, and he, he actually did change my heart a little bit in the sense that he became, he, he caused me to be a little more content with where things were at. It never was fully a piece. Um, and so then over a period of six, seven years... Um, I think Dave came. It was actually right after he got back from the Middle East on a missions trip. And he said, we really need to go and have dinner because I need to share something really important that God's doing in my heart. Um, And I was like, oh, he wants us to move to the Middle East. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Really nervous. Um, And it wasn't that. He actually sat me down and just said, um, hey, I, I've been really wrestling. I kind of feel like Jonah running from something that um, scares the tar out of me. And that is having more kids. And I really feel like that's where God's leading us. And so at that point, I was like, oh, well, okay. Well, I'm a little content right where I'm at. Um, okay. So so God kind of led this journey for us. But he allowed both of us, I think, to be at a place individually I, or we're dependent rem- on him.
0: I remember before I went to the Middle East, the moment where God, you know, but not in an audible voice, but just, I, I knew that we were going to add a couple more. And I, I was out for a walk and I saw this old guy pushing a kid in the stroller. <laughs> and God said, Dave, that's going to be you. <laughs> like, And, uh, and, you know, it's, and, uh, but what I love about that is there is, I think it's a fantastic example of Clarissa saying, Dave, I'll follow you, this, the, the lead on this, but guess what? I know who's the head of you, and i gonna talk to him about it. And, uh, and God's the one who did the changing. I, I love that story because I think that's a great example for us, how this issue of headship and complementarianism work out. There's this mutual great value. There's this understanding that we have different roles, but that we need each other. Um, and I think as uh, I wanted Clarissa to come up because she can say that way better than I ever could in, her, in, the, in the way she communicates. And uh, I really value that. So as we wrap up our passage today, I just leave you with that simple idea of engaging with this and understanding that there, there is an attitude of the heart in, involved in this. And there is a joy when this works the way it's supposed to, no one gets oppressed. No one gets squashed. But we are doing what we were designed for, and there is respect and beauty brought out in this. Yeah,
1: sure. So I, for, for the guys in here, as a wife, I will tell you that the time you spend praying with your wife, the time you spend sacrificing for her and loving her and showing her that she's valued and cherished will cause her to want to submit to you and to respect and to honor those things go mutually hand in hand and so when the fighting happens you know when Dave and I start arguing usually it's because one of us isn't necessarily surrendering in the way that God wants us to surrender um And so it's a beautiful, like you said, a dance. It's a beautiful dance. Um, And husbands and wives need to do that together.
0: Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that I didn't really want to talk about today. And yet, it's a beautiful piece. God, would you help us? Help us, Lord. We need your strength to be able to live this out. To shed our cultural expectations of what this passage means, and to truly live in a way that uh, values each other, that respects differences, and that says we need each other. Um, and God, there are those here for this passage is really hard today. Um, because maybe uh, there are some here whose husbands have no interest in following Christ. God, there are some here whose lives are far from you. There are some here who just have pain of divorce in their background, some who aren't married, some who j- just, God, for all different reasons. God, I pray the beauty and truth of this passage today would bring comfort, because ultimately, Jesus, you are our head, and we joyfully submit to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.